Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there Matt, how are you today? Busy, busy, busy. I think that's reflective of the whole city right now. It is. There's a real buzz about the place, isn't there? And this is, a lot of tourist operators talk about this being the best weather, Mm. that spring and certainly the autumn weather, Nice days, they yeah. get into the low 20s, a bit of sunshine around, beautifully out in that yeah. hot sun, and not too cold at night. I don't necessarily be out all night, mm-hmm. but it's not too cold, not getting down to the zeros and the just into the negatives like you do in the middle of winter. No, so no, no. really good weather, and I think that just means you get lots of activity around yeah. a whole range of things, whether it be tourist activities or whether it be just businesses and shops and people coming to shop in Dubbo. Yes. And obviously you're not getting to that middle of the summer where you're getting up around the 40 degrees Celsius. So yeah, good time of year to be around Dubbo. Well, there's been so much happening lately, hasn't there? Like we've uh, right in the middle of the Dream Festival period right now, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, we, of course, we had the Zoo Fun Run uh, a couple of weeks ago. you got Grand Finals on today as well here in town with Rugby League. There just seems to be a lot of people around town, lots of activity, lots of positivity. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's right. Better than the alternative, which is... Nothing happening and everything being dead quiet. So it's good overall. Again, one of the problems we still hear from a lot of businesses is they are busy Mm. and they need more employees. So Mm. that's still an ongoing problem, which is not a bad problem to have. That's right. But of course, then when employees want to come here, they've got to try and find some housing, which is again another problem. But again, Mm. much better than the alternative. If you had a place that had employees saying, we don't have, or employers saying, we, we, we've got too many employees, we're going to have to sack people, mm. or having a city that says, no one wants to come here and we've got all this excess housing, mm. those two problems would be much harder to address than the problems we've got. So, oh, definitely. Look, it's always a, thing to work on. It's always great to see Dubbo alive and active. So, speaking of alive and active and, uh, and people coming into the town, I noticed there during the week, uh, the latest citizenship ceremony. Now, of course, we've increased these numbers of citizenship ceremonies over the last uh, 12 months or so. So how'd it go uh, last week? I still get excited about them. We are having them more regularly, mm. as you've talked about there, because we're getting to the stage where the groups were getting too large. So we had to bring it back to still make it a personal affair. Yep. 31 new citizens that that's we had great. during the week. Yeah, it, it is. It seems to be a fairly constant number around that 30, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do have them regularly enough that 30 to maybe 40, when they start to get much bigger than 40, I think they start to lose a bit of that Mm. personal impact because I do like to try and get around and talk to as many as possible. This time, I actually didn't get to talk to as many as I normally would. Right. We tried a slightly different time. Normally, we have them in the mornings. And so, if you're an employee in a business, for example, you would get away sometime in the morning and say, I've got to go and do my citizenship ceremony and Mm -hmm. you might take a bit of time off, then you might come back and keep working. You might maybe even have a lunch, for example, with some friends and family and then go back to work. Kids out of school, they'll often get taken out of school. Maybe they don't go to school in the morning, but they Mm -hmm. might go back at lunchtime. We thought it'd be interesting to try in the afternoon. And so we tried three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. We'll probably try four o'clock the next time, but three o'clock seemed to be okay. Did it work all right? Well, it uh, did. Better numbers this time around? Well, I think it's more about the individuals that are becoming new citizens, Mm. what they do. So the feedback we heard from them was that when they pulled the kids out of school, it was towards the end of the day, Mm. and obviously you wouldn't go back to school because school's finished by the time you finished. Or from a workplace perspective, you take the afternoon off and go and do your citizenship ceremony Mm. and then maybe go out and celebrate, have a dinner or something afterwards. So I I think even 4 o'clock might be a little bit better. Mm. But it's one of those things, you're getting feedback from people 
that are never going to do it again. That's right. <laughs> so, so you're saying, <laughs> That's a fair point. what yeah, did you absolutely. think about this right, for yeah. the next group of people that yeah, come through? Yeah. But I think people are pretty keen to give okay. you their opinions. And I did get around and talk to a few people, but probably my favourite story from them all was... I do enjoy your stories on <laughs> citizenship. So who have you got for us this time? Well, this was a family that came from the UK. And I've mentioned before that yes. we don't often get people from the UK these days. It no. used to be, years ago, it was all these people from the UK, mm, a few from mm, New Zealand, mm. maybe a couple from the US and maybe mm. Canada... And maybe the occasional one from somewhere like India, whereas now it's the Philippines, it's Nepal, it's India, mm. and occasionally get someone from the UK. But this mm. time it had a family, and when I say family, there was a, a mother and two children. The father was there at the ceremony, and I didn't get time to find out whether he'd already become a citizen right. or was still waiting to become a citizen. But certainly the discussion there with the family, I like to say, you're in Dubbo. Yes. Fantastic. I love that. How did you get here? What's mm. your journey that's mm. taken you from wherever you are yep. to Dubbo? And their journey was interesting. Started in the UK, obviously. They were still UK citizens. They ended up going through another country and then ending up in Dubbo. Right. And they were employees of the New South Wales government. Their first job, the first place they lived in Australia was Dubbo. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and they yeah, saw yeah. an advertisement for jobs in the New South Wales government, but based here in Dubbo. So there must have been something very specific about that that drew them here. Well, again, I think you're right, and I don't want to give away too many details because I, I haven't really got permission from them yeah, to sure, talk sure. about their individual story. But, yes, no, fair enough. But the, the thing that I found fascinating about that was that we've got this process now where more and more governments, both mm. state and federal, are working out that you don't have to work and live in a capital city. Mm. We did learn that during the pandemic that people can live outside of the big city to actually still be productive and still do useful work. Mm. So in this scenario, absolutely both of them are working in different departments for the New South Wales government, mm. but they're living here in Dubbo. And they have done for some time. You need to be living somewhere for more than five years in Australia before you can actually go through the citizenship right. process. Yes, yes. So they've been here before the pandemic. But again, this whole process that mm. we've got good employment in Dubbo from the state government, and that's fantastic, and that adds to our community. So here we now have a family, two children at school here in Dubbo yeah. because the New South Wales government has got jobs here in Dubbo that are relevant to the state, maybe relevant to a, a wider scale than just the state. Yes. But I just I like the fact that it was a nice, simple process for them where mm. they just came straight to Dubbo, and that's where they stayed, that's what they love, and yeah. and from an Australian perspective, they think that's great. But actually, I think uh, during the week there was a bit of discussion uh, on the media in regards to, right now, we're, we're having more and more people than ever saying to move out towards uh, regional centres. I think mm. it's, it's the largest movement that's, that's ever happened uh, that they can record. So, of course, we're part of the beneficiary of that right now. Um, so these numbers increasing, it's only good for us. It's got to be great. Yeah, it is. You're spot on. And again, I don't like to talk about COVID-19 in positive terms because mm. people lost their lives. And so there were obviously some terrible things that occurred with COVID-19. People became very sick and, as I said, people died. So mm. I don't like to talk about it in positives, but you're always looking for a positive. Absolutely. One of the positives that occurred from COVID-19 was we as a society discovered that you could actually work away from where your traditional workplace mm. was. Mm. So people in Sydney, for example, realised that they could work from their home mm. 10 hours or sorry, 10 minutes or an hour or five hours away from where their workplace was. So they might have had a commute in the past. It was a, a one hour commute to work. But once they worked out they could work from home, yeah. it didn't matter if they were one hour from work or five hours from That's work. Right. So suddenly they went, well, why am I living in Sydney? House prices are expensive. If I do want to go anywhere, it's a long commute. Yes. Maybe I could live in a regional location 
Dubbo is one of those great yeah. regional locations. Life choices, isn't it? That's, That's what it boils right. down to. I can still do my job effectively. Mm. I can still, if I had to be in Sydney, I can still be on a plane and in Sydney pretty quickly. Mm. But I can work much better, not have that commute time, better lifestyle, mm. better quality of life, and oh, I still get paid the same money that yeah. I got paid when I was in Sydney. So Absolutely. happy days. You're living in a great place like you're out in Dubbo. Yeah. Now, this one of the things I uh, love to talk to you about is uh, something that's very close to my heart is obviously within the education sector. And I noticed here that during the week, I got a chance to go out and to uh, talk to some little kids out there at Arana Heights Public School here in town and to explain the different levels of government. Uh, like a guest speaker, my friend. So how did it all go? Well, kids normally will often come to the chamber and that's if they've got, say, one class, we can fit them in the chamber. Of course, we don't have a permanent chamber now, but we'd still accommodate kids mm. at the chamber if... if groups want to come along. In this particular scenario, they had about 80 children in the year that had been studying local government, studying nice. different levels of government. Yes. And so I thought, well, it's probably easier for me to go out to the school rather than vice versa, organising mm. buses and all the rest of it. Yes. It's a bit of a pain, I imagine, uh, for a teacher. Absolutely. Whereas, I can uh, pay heed to that. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So a bit easier for me to turn up there, which mm. I did. And so I talked to them, first of all, about just in general, different levels of government. And I love to give a bit of a quiz about who's responsible for different things. And I'll go through and do some obvious ones that are defined pretty specifically about each level of government. Yeah. I always like to throw roads in there. I say, who's responsible for roads? And <laughs> someone will say local, and I go almost, and someone will say state, almost, someone will say federal, I say almost, and I go, hold on, well, that's all three. And I said, that's exactly right. It's a trick question, because depending on the road, and depending on how it's classified, I local, I can see the fact regional, in your earlier life that uh, you must be one of these kids in the class, the teacher must go, oh, good, Matthew, yes, <laughs> what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, uh, yeah, you're probably right, and it's fun now on the other side. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but again, it's it's one of those questions because people don't often understand who's responsible for different yes. levels of or, or different things in our community. But roads is a typically difficult one mm. because it, depending on the road and depending on the funding stream, mm. it can be one, two, or all three levels Absolutely. of government for all sorts oh, of different We've roads. had many discussions ourselves in this podcast where I've struggled to try to work it out as well. Yeah, that's right. So the kids not getting it right is okay. But yeah. the thing that I enjoy the most, so we talk about that, talk about the different levels, they happen to be going off to Canberra in a couple of weeks' time, so I thought that'll be exciting oh, yes, for them. Yes, the, the famous Canberra excursions, yeah. Yeah, that's right, and they'll see Mark Horton over there, the federal member. And nice. So that'll be interesting for them as well. But question and answer is always interesting, mm. and just go through and, and asking or, or finding out what they think about different things there. But I do a mock debate with every group, and the mock debate is we get the teacher, I don't want to have the responsibility of doing it, so I get the teacher to pick out a mayor and a deputy mayor and councillors and a general manager of council and some oh, people that are going to come along from the yeah. public and some media and That's the great. whole scenario you would see. And then I get the kids to pick out a topic to be the agenda item at the council right, meeting. Right. And so I ask for different ideas and the old chestnuts will come up, kids shouldn't have to do homework, no school uniform. Mm -hmm. uh, one kid wanted to say that it wasn't compulsory for hats, for example. So there are a range of different ideas that were thrown around in terms of that. Mm. But in the end, it's a democracy we work in. So in the end, I Out say, well, I, I, exactly right. I say, right, we've got, and we had four topics to choose from for the mock debate. Mm. And so I'll say, okay, you've got your four topics. Let's have a quick vote and see which one. So the one that won the debate topic was school uniform. Oh, wow. Do school original. uniform. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and... It seemed obvious to me that just hearing the discussion and just hearing how mm. keen they were to talk about this particular topic, I thought, well, this might be a great debate. It's amazing how kids get so passionate about school uniforms. Yeah. You know, some want it, some don't, but it's, well, uh, no, since it's, Adam was a boy, it's it a It seemed obvious battle. to me that it was going to be get rid of them. 
Yes. And I thought, oh, this yes. might be a great topic for debate because you want one that's got a bit of back and forth and a tight decision-making process. Mm. But anyway, they seem to want to do that, so let's run with that. Yep. Had the councillors that's sitting up there on stage and had the mayor running the meeting and it was basically come up with a topic, put some ideas forward, and, and I said to some of the councillors there, just come up with a, a different angle, mm. even if you don't truly believe it, just to make the debate a bit more interesting. Mm. We had the parents who came along and presented in public forum to the meeting. Oh, I mean, right, the, okay. the, the, the fake parents, obviously, oh. the, the students. So, <laughs> I was so, going to say, this suddenly become bigger than Ben Hurd. No, 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 sorry. I get everyone to be playing different parts. Right, so a right. couple of the students become the parents coming oh, yeah, along and, and presenting and had some of the, the staff. role playing. Yeah, that's right. Some yep. of the staff there giving their expert opinion on it and all the rest of it. So we went through this debate and there were some really good ideas put forward in both directions. Mm. And then finally, the mayor called for a vote. And even during the debate, there was one thing that was brought up by one of the, the mock councillors mm. and basically saying, you're yeah, in school uniform. And there was a cheer from the audience, from all the other students yeah. in the audience. And I went, well, that again, seems to me, it's pretty obvious which way it's going to go. I did mm. say to the, the children that in a council meeting, the audience isn't allowed to cheer because you don't want to put undue pressure on some of the oh, councillors. Good point. So when it came to the vote, I still thought it was probably going to be Maybe unanimous, maybe one or two might go the mm-hmm. other way, but it just seemed like the the feel in the audience, the feel in the room was definitely get rid of school uniforms. Mm. Drop and them now. Get rid of them. That's right. And that's probably part of the reason kids bring it up as a good debate topic because mm. they want to get rid of them. But when it came to the vote and the mayor called for all those in favour, all those against, mm. the vote ended up being 7-4 oh. to keep school uniforms. I can sense where that sort of, where was that going to go? Like, I wasn't quite expecting that. I would have no. thought the other way as well. So, yeah, okay. Right. But again, and I said, and I don't, always know what the answer is going to be, but I mm. said, well, there's a, a great example where it seemed obvious to me, and I explained this to the kids, that it seemed obvious that which way the vote was going to go, but once the debate was heard, mm. once all the ideas were brought forward, and then all of the mock councillors mm. had to consider all this, then they went, actually, no, it's probably best to keep school uniform. That's oh, a classic example of democracy in action. It is, and one of the things that's fascinating is when... You, if you stick to the letter of the law, the Local Government Act, which I assume that every council across the state tries mm. to do... If you said to someone, oh, there's a vote coming up for blue widgets at council, which way are you going to vote? Mm. If I said, oh, yep, I'm going to vote definitely for blue widgets, I've just breached the Local Government Act because I shouldn't make my mind up until I'm in the meeting and I've heard the debate and I've heard all the things there because if I say, oh, yep, I'm definitely voting a certain way and I've locked myself in before I've heard all the information, Mm. then I'm not really making a decision with all the correct information. You know what that is? That's one of the seven principles of highly effective people, isn't it? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that Stephen Covey's actually used a lot of the local government act, but <laughs> I'm sure the same principles apply. <laughs> I'm sure he's apply. been referenced once or twice. That's right. But I think what's fascinating in there is that it almost sounds like a councillor is being a bit evasive when mm. someone says, hey, Councillor Mark, what way are you going to vote? Well, I can't say. Mm. Well, can't you tell me your opinion? Well, I can tell you what I'm thinking and mm. my opinion, but I can't say I'm definitely going to vote away because mm. as soon as I say I'm definitely voting a certain way, then I've locked myself in a position and that's breaching the local government yeah, act. Right, okay. So, yeah, it's quite yeah. fascinating in that whole process. And actually, breaching the local government act, breaching the, the model code of conduct probably would be more accurate in that mm. in terms of the way you vote for things. And again, as a simple example from a school, mm. once you hear all the debate and all the topics, sometimes you might change your mind. Yeah, well, well I'm very pleased to hear that the Arana Heights kids have followed the Local Government Act effectively. Now, one of your travels uh, during the week there, Matt, uh, 
You managed to get yourself down there to Canberra again. You, you love Canberra, don't you? It's a bit cold. Still at the moment, it's a bit it's cold, a actually. fresh down there it was again. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Now, this week, uh, mate, you went down and you attended a... Well, it's actually referenced in here as a congress. Congress? Conference? Is this potato, potato? I'm not really quite sure in regards to the difference between a congress or a conference. You might be able to answer that question for me. And you're down there for the National Local Roads, Transport and Infrastructure Congress. Or was it a conference? Well, to me, it seemed like a conference. Is there a difference? I haven't been able to work out what it is. I've attended various congresses Mm. over the years and various conferences over the years, and they both look and feel and smell pretty much the same to me. Congress to me sounds very UN, doesn't it? It's the UN Congress. It it does, and it does sound very formal. It does. But I again, I haven't been able to work out the difference between conference and congress, but call it a gathering if you like. That that works. We had a bunch of people together, and it's interesting because it's always been referred well, I've always heard it referred to as the Roads Congress. Oh, the Roads Congress this year, we're mm. going to talk about A, B and C. And it's interesting that the official title talks about roads, transport and infrastructure. Mm. And so Quite a broad area, really, when you think about it. It is, when you, exactly right when you talk about that. And so a couple of the sessions that stood out for me were mm. probably broader than just roads. One of them was around community batteries. And I've had some people talk to me about community batteries in Dubbo. Now, Dubbo would be a perfect spot to have a community battery. So what is a community battery? Well, uh, good question. I'll get to that in one second. I'll just be jumping and preempting for you. That's right. It's it's a perfect spot for community batteries in Dubbo because we've got a very high concentration of solar panels. Mm. Many years ago, we started this process before the 60 cent scheme from the New South Wales government. So we mm-hmm. actually started a scheme at council to oh, encourage solar days. panels. 60 cent schemes. Remember those days? They, and How they were. And they? then that accelerated oh. it dramatically. Mm. So on the basis of a program that we started about 13 or 14 years ago, and then the 60 cent scheme... Mm. Dubbo became the number one postcode in the nation per capita for rooftop penetration right? for solar. Number one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, we're not number one now. We're still up there. Mm. Some other places have gone past us on a per capita basis. Mm. But lots of rooftop solar is great. Then you start to have conversations with people who say, oh, I've put in a battery in my garage or I've put a battery on the side of my house mm. so that when I've got that excess solar in the middle of the day, I can be storing that up and then I can use that at night mm. and then maybe still use some off the grid. Is there or uptake of that here in town? We have a few of those sort of things happening? Certainly if you talk to some of the installers, there are people who are doing that. Okay, Absolutely cool. right. And we've got good sunshine, so that makes sense. Mm. A community battery goes a step further than that where okay. you might have a, a neighbourhood, a group of people, and I'm trying to find out some specific details because I've had a few people who have asked me about it, but I'm trying to find out, for example, the best number of houses. Is it 10? Is it 20? Mm. Is it 50? Is it 100? But you get a group of people who say, well... You could put a battery in your garage, Mark, and I could put a battery in my garage, and the next one over could have a battery. But we might be on holidays, and we're generating all this excess solar mm. or excess power through our solar, but we're not using it, and it goes into our battery, and we're not really using that at night time. So we're not getting full advantage out of it. But if mm. we average it out across a bunch of us, then sometimes someone might be away, someone might be home, someone might be using more, someone might be using less. So we're all generating some power, and then we're all drawing some power from this battery. So it maybe evens out that a little bit, so we're less likely to yeah, need right. any power from the grid. So it's like a giant big battery that, that a group of people sort of feed into, and then we can take together as a community group, a small little community group, take that energy back out of it. Yeah, that's right. Now, you're also tied into the grid, yeah, right. and you can do other things. You can be a bit tricky about it. If, you, if you're just trying to make money out of it, hmm. then you can actually set up so that you're feeding power back to the grid hmm. when you're getting paid the most for that power, and then you might actually draw power from the grid to charge your battery up when power is cheap. Mm. I'm not sure that's really the intention, but that some people do it that way. But most people say, we've got solar around here, let's charge up the battery, and then use it when we need it, and then if we need excess, we'll take it from the mm. grid as mm. per normal. So 
I love the idea of that. And there's two scenarios. I've had some people approach me in Dubbo to say, we want to put one in our neighbourhood. How do we do it? And I'm mm. trying to find out the process because there's so many different players involved here. Well, how big are these, these things? Are they, they, they take a lot of land space or are they a small type of operation, like uh, size-wise? If, if we wanted to retrospectively sort of put in a, a big battery somewhere in the middle of Eastridge, for argument's sake, like how much space would you need? They're different sizes, depending on the size of the battery and how many people mm. might be feeding into it. But typically, you'd expect, sometimes you see on the side of the road, uh, a little substation, for example, or even the green boxes, if you like, around the place. Mm. When you see those, it's probably, you'd expect it to be maybe twice the size, maybe three times the size of one of those okay. as, a, as a base size. Yep. So that gives you a bit of an idea. Yep. But again, they can vary in size. But that was one of the questions mm. that I wanted to find out. Well, yeah. the, the answers yeah. I needed was how big is it, depending on how many people might use it, all those things. So there was a great presentation there by a, a gentleman who's been involved in a community battery down in Victoria. And some of the things that you get at a conference are a business card. And so when I heard this nice. presentation, I got some answers, but I had probably more questions then on those answers. So I talked to the gentleman after that, got a card off, I've already sent him off an email and said, here's one of our potential solutions. But the other solution that we've got in Dubbo is that we've got some land that we develop. Now, we want to make decisions best long-term for mm. Dubbo. Mm. We've already talked about the fact that we've got some of the Blocks reserved in a future housing development of Dubbo for 3D printed housing. Yes. Great. Very futuristic. Yep. We're talking about other things in our estate. So, for example, do we actually even run gas lines mm. in the next estate? Because we're getting to the point where you're not going to have gas in houses anymore. Mm. Maybe today you still will, but in years to come. But if we don't run gas lines, that can actually make each block of land a little bit cheaper. Mm. And it's probably not going to be a big disadvantage for people because they're probably going to use more electrical appliances rather than gas. Mm. The next one is to think about, should we actually build an estate that's got every household in there connected to a community battery? Mm. So you do them in groups of whatever is the ideal size, whether it be 20 homes, mm. 40 homes, whatever it might be. Yeah. And there's that group of homes yeah. and there's the community battery. So when we're planning the estate, mm. we plan the battery as part of the overall estate. Or would you see it maybe as, as a trial basis, for example? Let, let's say, um, I'm just sort of hypothesising here in regards to, let's say it takes a minimum of 20 homes. Uh, to to feed into this community battery, would do you think council might be interested in let's say the new northwest precinct sort of uh, the operation up there to maybe down the track to think well let's let's do a trial of this let's have twenty blocks and therefore if you want to buy that block you're also signing off on the fact that you're going to be feeding into the community battery uh, operation yeah and that's the sort of thing that I think we've got to look at to try mm-hmm. and be progressive and innovative and this is a new economy this whole thing with renewable energy in my opinion is a new economy. Mm. What do we do with a new economy? You've got to think about things differently. You can't just keep doing it the same old way. So having that sort of approach where we might try a trial, we might have potentially some land allocated for a community battery Mm. so that you mightn't put it in on day one, but at some point down the track, I imagine when you're retrofitting somewhere, one of the challenges is where can we put this? Mm. We're on a top of footpath. Someone doesn't probably want it in their backyard. Mm. Where do we actually put this community battery? Whereas if we said, right, and again, whatever the ideal size is, if it's 20 homes, mm. for every 20 homes we've got in this new estate, well, there's the space that we'll allocate for that community mm. battery to go if at some stage down the track those community members start to do it. So yeah. those are sort of things that you get. The other one that I had or found fascinating was a, a session on the road toll. Not so much roads or lots of discussions. Road toll? Yeah, As on the in, road toll. Uh, yeah, pay two dollars. Oh, that's no, thing. no, I'm yeah, thinking, sorry, yeah, right? Yeah, okay, no, I'm no. thinking like pay two dollars forty to get to Wellington or something. No, 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 don't don't say that. People will start believing that straight away. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, how rumours start. Let me tell you. Right. So no, road toll in terms of deaths on the road. Yeah, and this okay. particular gentleman that presented talked about the 
seven errors that led to deaths on the road. And some of the things that fascinated me on that, one of the, the stats that scared me mm. was the number of people who still don't wear seatbelts. It was somewhere in the vicinity of 22% of deaths are from people that are in a car not wearing a seatbelt. Now, That's there might be other factors as well, yeah. but not wearing a seatbelt. So if you're in a car accident and you haven't got your seatbelt on... 22%. 22% of people that die in car accidents don't have oh a seatbelt on. So I just thought it was a natural. I just thought it was a I given. Think, absolutely, that was a word I was going to say. Yeah, I thought it would be a given. Just and I, you jump I actually on, don't feel right. If I jump in the car and yeah. I start driving off and the seatbelt's on, it just doesn't feel right. Sometimes yeah. you jump in a taxi and the seatbelt is actually a bit hidden in the back seat yes. that you try to find and, and the yeah. guy starts driving. I go, hold on a second, I've got my seatbelt on. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's like, they don't seem to care. It's just off they go. But I, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. We're still getting too much drink driving. Yeah. And so, again, we've had two generations now mm. that have been around for drink driving. I think 982 was when random breath mm. testing started. So surely people have got the message now. And I know kids that come out of school, I know my kids, it's, it's just, again, you just don't go to that party with your car if yeah. you're going to be drinking. It's yeah. just, it's obvious. So there's still some people that need to learn that lesson. Speeding wasn't probably as much as I thought it might mm. be. And I did actually talk to the presenter after the session and I said, do we have any good data from the Northern Territory, for example, mm. where they've often got speed limits of 130 or unlimited when you get way away from mm. the major population areas? And essentially the message that he had was that speeding still causes deaths, not necessarily because of the speeding itself, but when you have an accident mm. at 130, you're travelling faster yeah. and you're more likely to have bits of your body separated from other bits yes. of your body. Deacceleration will do that. Exactly, rather than travelling at 110 or mm. 100. So there is a factor of four as you increase your speed. So okay. speed was still an issue, whether or not, because someone was talking about saying that there's some data out there, don't know if data is the right word, some information mm. out there, mm. maybe they read it on a Facebook page, that <laughs> says when you're travelling faster, you're concentrating more, so you're less likely to have an accident. Now, I haven't seen anything along those yes. lines. Yes, well, I don't <laughs> know about the logic in that one, but anyway. Maybe yes. they've watched Formula One drivers doing 300 kilometres an hour right. saying, gee, they're concentrating athletes. hard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, in a purposely built car. That's right, on a safe racetrack. On, exactly right, <laughs> with no one else around. Um, so I think you just pick up little bits here and there from mm. all sorts of things, but... The seatbelt messaging, mm. I, I started then thinking, is there something we can do from a local level or maybe yeah. just encourage the but state like a government? a campaign sort of thing that yeah. local government can possibly do to support wear a seatbelt, don't I mean, the drink and don't click, distract yourself from mobile phones and things? Yeah, well, that, that as well. But but the old click-clack front and back, I mean, those sort of messages. Yeah. But one gentleman there did tell us about the fact that some people who don't like wearing a seatbelt get in the car and they'll click in the seatbelt before they get in the car to stop the annoying beeping from the car. Mm. And I thought, it's a lot of trouble to go to. When you just put it, that's right. Just put it around yourself. I still consider the seatbelt the greatest single safety device in our vehicles at the Mm. moment. It is just a fantastic invention. Volvo, as you probably know the history, Volvo Mm. invented it and didn't retain it for just Volvos. They said the world can have it. This is too important an invention to keep for just one brand. Is that right? Volvo started. Yeah, which is a magnificent contribution by Volvo to the world of safety and probably didn't harm their reputation for safety at all. But again, it is a simple, a really Mm. simple safety device that people should be wearing. So you, you sometimes pick up little bits and pieces out of it from things like that. You have random conversations with people. You learn all sorts of things. Mm. So it's always interesting to go to a, a congress or conference. Yes, yes. Never potato, know which, potato. That's right. You never know what you're going to pick up from that. But again, I, I found it fascinating from those few points of view. Yes. 
How I Bet You Any Money, the fact that you're in Canberra and uh, every time we seem to have a chat on these podcasts, there's always a new minister or a minister you've caught up with uh, on a, again on a regular basis. Uh, so who did you catch up with this time? You must have caught up with a few ministers down there, surely. A couple of them came along to the conference or Congress, mm. which is mm. good. Mm. I met someone for the first time, the Senator, the Honourable Carol Brown, who's the Assistant Minister for Infrastructure and Transport. So right. Catherine King mm. is the... Lead minister, yes, or we've the spoken minister about there her a few times. Yes, that's right. And so Carol is an assistant to Catherine. Can you ask a question regards it? What, what's the difference between, like, with the assistant? Like, what's what's the assistant's role as opposed to say that they're straight out minister? It would probably vary depending on the portfolio and the individuals involved. But the mm. reality is, if you're a minister in the federal government, you've got a lot to be across. And you've got a lot of people that want to meet with you. I did hear one minister tell me one day that when they became a minister, it was a new government elected, a new flavour of government elected, and they became a minister for the first time. Mm. And on the first day in that portfolio, they said they had in the vicinity of 800 groups request a meeting wow. with them. No pressure there. That's right. Mm. Now, you've got to try and sift through all that. So if you're Catherine King, mm. and it wasn't Catherine who told me that number, but if you're Catherine King, you would have a lot of requests for a meeting, and you've mm. got to try and work out what ones you can get to, what ones are going to be effective, the best use of your time, etc. Mm. Now, something like a, a portfolio like infrastructure and transport, mm. it's, it's huge. huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's not as if it's only applicable to one part of the nation. So you've mm. got transport and infrastructure issues across the entire nation. Mm. One of the things that you would have then is you would say, well, I can't do all this on my own. And people want to meet with the minister sometimes. The staff members are great to, to meet with it. Sometimes people just want to be able to mm. meet with the minister and just talk to them face-to-face. Mm. Having assistant ministers means that you can say, I can't get to that Roads Congress. Mm. Carol, could you go along there, please? And you can represent the department, rec- yep. represent the portfolio. Yes, you're not the minister. You're the assistant minister. But, but she'd uh, have to be across the portfolio as well, I'd suggest. Exactly yeah. right. And also feedback that information mm. back to Catherine. So, mm. oh, Catherine, I had some conversation the other day, but a really important one I had was, and away you'd go. Mm. So mm. I got a chance to meet Carolyn. She seemed very nice. And I did get a chance to talk to her, as I do often talk to the federal government about anything to do with infrastructure or roads. It's all about the renewable energy zone we have here, which, mm. again, the pitch that I have is, what we're trying to do is we're trying to solve a problem for the nation. This is a, a nationwide problem yep. with climate change, a nationwide problem with targets. In this area here, with the New South Wales government, we are solving part of the problem. But Which, I, actually, sorry to pick you up there, but during the week, Chris Mims made reference to the Central West in, in exactly what you're talking about. There you go. The renewable energy zone, you know, they've got the problems right now with uh, what's happening with the energy and they're feeling as though they need to sort of power up one of those power stations or keep it going for another few more years. But you identified the Central West as being pretty much the saviour for us. And it will continue to be. And if Energy Co get going with their transmission lines, mm. there'll be a lot more. We've talked about 37 projects out in this it's renewable huge. energy zone. Yeah, yeah. So I did stress to the fact that we are helping and it's a message I've said before to different ministers, including mm. Catherine King. Mm. We are helping solve the problem for the nation, but we want to make sure that the road infrastructure in this area is up to scratch to allow these projects to go ahead. But mm. also, that's a nice little side benefit for people in that Bedangra and Wellington area there, that their road infrastructure will be fixed up to a level that these projects can proceed which is also good for all the people that live there, the farmers, the people that use those roads, etc. Yeah. So Carol was quite interested in all of that. So that was a, a is she happy to provide a bit more money our way, or well, it's probably not as simple as hi, mm. Carol. Here's a oh great, Matthew. Could we just give you ten million dollars for roads tomorrow? Mm. Uh, mm. It'd be nice if it was that simple. But this government, this federal government, is very focused on making sure there are 
processes. What I want to do is make sure that these ministers understand some of the issues. Mm. So when applications do go in for funding or when the New South Wales government is talking to the federal government mm. saying, we're solving a problem out here in the central west of Rana Renewable Energy Zone, mm. I want them to be familiar with the problem for them to say, mm. yes, yes, I had a conversation there. I've had a few conversations actually. And we know this is an important thing. What can we do to make sure we can make all this flow together? Is that happening? Is that the way this is sort of panning out right now? Without a doubt, the federal government and the state government are talking because they know they've got problems to solve. I don't, I'm not in those rooms when those conversations are happening. Sure. But one of the things, it's a bit like a purchasing decision. When you make a decision to go and purchase a new widget, mm. you don't normally make it on the first time you think about that purchasing decision. There's a, a, a number that generally says around 10 from a marketing perspective you need to have been exposed to a brand maybe 10 times before mm. you make a purchasing decision. So you saw that blue widget with a friend. You saw that blue widget on a TV ad. You thought about one day you needed to have a blue widget because you were doing something that needed blue widgets. So this process happens. Then one day you say, I'm going to go and get that blue widget. Or you might see an ad and that it might be the final trigger for you to go and buy that blue widget. And so it's the same with any sort of government projects, mm. any projects we're involved with. I need to make sure I keep mentioning important projects to the state government, to the federal government, every time I see them, mention it again, mm. so that it just becomes that constant thing. And so then they go, oh, mm. we've got to get those blue widgets. I don't know why, but mm. we've got to get those blue widgets. Is that potentially part of our marketing in the sense of the Central West region around here, the renewable renewable energy zone, Central West renewable energy zone almost, from the point of view of, as you say, keep putting it out there in the state government and federal government's face. So as soon as they mention the phrasing of renewable energy zone, we are connected to that. That's a, a really good idea, actually, and I haven't thought about that in the past, in terms of marketing our region with, with that. But I think that's an excellent idea. That's to, right. to I'll actually, sell it to you for a reasonable price. <laughs> yes, thanks. But <laughs> it is that sort of thing. You want to make sure Absolutely. that people are identifying somewhere. So when they think renewable energy, they think about our region. So mm. we haven't done that. And and maybe it needs to be progressed a little bit further. But again, with the REACT that we often talk mm. about, maybe that will be something that will tie in nicely. Mm. I did get a chance to mention the REACT to Carol Brown as well. Again, oh, nice. well done. Keep, keep mentioning, throwing it out there. Keep mentioning them. Christy McBain came and spoke at the dinner on the oh, yes. Wednesday night. Now, Christy did have a cold, so she didn't actually hang around. Normally, I'd catch up with Christy. Yep. And, uh, but she did actually say, I've got a cold. I'm going to deliver this speech, and then I'm going to go home to bed, mm. which was fine. I fully understand that. Mm. Uh, but again, it's good to hear from Christy. And again, Christy has been a mayor. Christy's been in local government. So when Christy is involved with anything to do with local government, we know that we've got someone in there that's got our back and that's fighting mm. hard for us. Mm. But I did actually manage to catch up with Chris Bowen again. Oh, okay. And, and I've caught up with him before and had a good chat to him previously. Yep. Again, he's the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. So mm. perfect one about our res. Yes. He absolutely gets the concept with the res. I've talked to him about the REC before. I've sent him information on that. But the roads, the roads, the roads is probably one of the angles that I keep pushing mm. to Chris to try and help solve our problem with roads around this area. Mm. And I've said it to residents around Wellington before, one of the things that's great with the res is that everyone wants their roads fixed across the state, across the nation. No council has got enough money to do all the roads themselves, and so everyone's putting the pressure on the state government. The state government is giving some money. We're getting some chunks of money to do work on our roads and to do the work they need to do on the state roads yep. and some help with regional roads. But they haven't got enough money either. Mm. So everyone's in the same position. Not enough money from rates, mm. not enough money from the state government, our roads aren't good enough. But the advantage we have in this res is that because we need those roads done to progress this res and because we've got proponents that are spending significant amounts of money yep. on the development of their project, then we've got a bit of an advantage over other areas that aren't in a res that I think 
we'll get our roads to a much higher standard because they'll be needed for the res. So that's an important part of it. I think you're it. right, isn't it? Like, uh, if you think about it, and is there a chance here too that these companies that are uh, setting up around the place, that we've talked about this before, uh, their responsibility um, towards helping finance uh, the upgrade of the roads? Because I'd be suggesting, you know, if you're setting up a big company and uh, that's out here in the re- renewable energy zone and you need to bring out uh, big new wind turbines and those type of things, I'd imagine some of the roads to get out to some of the place be pretty ordinary. They may have to do some bypassing around. I'd imagine if they fixed up a road and said a couple of million dollars to fix that up, to them that would be a a beneficial idea, wouldn't it? Well, some of them they'll have to do that. Mm. Some of them there'll be a minimum requirement. They'll have to bring the road up to a standard that they can put some of that equipment on the road. So definitely. But also, you're right, some of these projects are billion-dollar projects, billion with a B. Yes, that's right. To spend a few million with an M on a road to make that project quicker to roll out, some of those they would say, well, that was reasonable money to invest. So Mm. the the couple of parts there. One is they'll have to do a certain amount of work on the roads. They might do some extra work on the roads to make them better. Mm. But the third thing is that we've then got the planning agreements that we want to have in place, some of that ongoing funds that will come into our LGA, Mm. which some of that money will be spent on the roads. Mm. So you're getting a couple of bites at the cherry there to get our roads worked on. So we should have, in five years' time, ten years' time, roads that are better than other areas, all things being equal, because Mm. we'll have this extra money that other areas won't have. So that was good. The other thing I mentioned to Chris was a little anomaly, which mm. is one of those things, because he did talk in his initial introduction, it was a roundtable breakfast that Chris right. was at, and so he, he spoke of that, and then yeah. I actually asked a question publicly, just because I thought it was interesting for the room to hear, but then I mm. chatted to Chris afterwards as well. Mm. But one of the things that he did talk about in his initial comments was the fact that we've got electric vehicle sales going up, and he quoted some figures there, which were figures that are consistent with figures that I've seen as well, yeah. and that's fantastic. And... I think part of the reason that's occurred has been the change they made in the FBT legislation where a car, an EV, below the luxury car tax threshold, the purchase price, is FBT exempt. So for a business that buys an electric vehicle or a petrol vehicle for one of their employees, if they buy a petrol vehicle, they've got to go through the normal process of a logbook and justify right. the percentage of usage and there's other methods to use as well yep. from a taxation point of view. Hmm. If you buy an electric vehicle, again, below that luxury car tax threshold, Mm. then you don't need to do a logbook. You can just say automatically that car for that employee is now 100% tax deductible. So that's an advantage. That's a tax advantage for people. And I think that's made a difference. The frustration I have is that I understand fully the $90,000 threshold because they don't feel like they want to be giving tax advantages to people that can afford a very expensive car. But... The anomaly is I could buy a $220,000 ute as a goods-carrying vehicle and I can claim that as FBT exempt. Again, it's probably people that aren't following the tax laws to the letter of the law, but it's generally accepted. Hmm. You buy a ute, that's fine. I'm talking about a business scenario Hmm. here. That's FBT exempt because I've got that ute. Because they're looking at it from the, the business perspective and sort of ways of helping our businesses. That's right. And I think from a tax point of view, they say... Oh, well, that ute in the classic old mm. terms when utes were utes mm. was used by a tradie, for example, to do all the work the trade needed to do. Mm. And as incidental usage, that particular tradie might also happen to drive back home, which wouldn't normally, that journey wouldn't normally be tax deductible. Mm. But that's incidental. The main reason that person's got that ute is to generate income in their business 
And as an employee, for example, it's okay to do that. Again, I'm being careful. I don't want to go and give tax law, tax advice to people. But what's happened in terms of a creep over time is people buy utes in their business. They don't necessarily have this thorough process from the tax office perspective where they go through and check the usage and whether the Mm. other usage is incidental. There are some utes out there that I would almost guarantee Mm. have never had something in the back of that tray, but they're used in an FPT Tax evade, no, so do you have to that's too tough. Uh, an FPT um, free environment. Right. So what I said to, to Chris was, there's an anomaly there that I can buy a two hundred twenty thousand dollar six point two liter V eight gas guzzling Ute, yeah. FPT exempt. If I buy a ninety thousand dollar EV, good for the environment, let's progress electric vehicles. It's not FPT exempt. So surely that would be nice to fix that up. And what did he say about that? What was his thoughts? Well, he mainly focused on the we don't want to give tax breaks to people that can afford a car that's more expensive than $90,000 and mainly sidestep the issue about a $20,000 Ute. Right. But it is something, I mean, I'd be happy to see yeah. the threshold lifted for EVs as well because they are more expensive up front. They're cheaper to run overall. Yeah. But I think even if people bought more expensive EVs and the reason they did it was triggered by an FPT exemption, yep. that would then introduce more cars, the second-hand market needs to come. Mm-hmm. It would also free up a bit of demand down in the lower, lower end, end of the end scale. Yeah, yeah. So I think a few reasons there. I can understand where they're coming from, mm. but I could be, I'd be more comfortable with it if I couldn't spend all that money on a yeah. ute, if there was the same sort of limit on a ute that you might need to use rather than no limit. You know, there's one more question I want to ask you in this. Um, just in regards generally from the federal government's perspective, and I'm wondering if you've got any information here from Chris Bowen, um, what's their thoughts in regards? Do they have a timeline in the sense of where they feel as though Australia needs to be at by... I don't know, let's say by 2030. Um, and are we are they expecting Australia to go fully, um, you know, environmentally friendly by 2030? What, what's the cutoff date they're looking at now? Now, are you talking about? It's the Paris Agreement type stuff and yeah, things right. like that. Yeah. Are we are we still on track for all of that? Well, I'm probably not the best one to ask about the federal government's emissions targets because obviously. I'm focused on local government. There's enough to keep me busy with local government, so I don't know everything back to front and inside out. The only two figures that I'm familiar familiar with off the top of my head is that we've committed to net zero by 2050, and the target for the emissions targets along the way is a 43% reduction from our 2005 levels by 2030. So they're the two basic numbers that I hear talked about regularly. And I do remember hearing one discussion from one member of parliament, not in government, and they were talking about the fact that we shouldn't be doing anything at the moment because, well, 2050 is a long way away, so we should worry about that in 2049 maybe. Or even our 2030 target of 43% reduction, well, we've got a few years till that, so let's just wait until then. But I think that's a fairly short-sighted view Obviously, if I was training for the Olympics, for example, then I wouldn't be waiting until a few days before the Olympics to say, right, now I better work out a way to get down to that time I was trying to get to before I run that marathon or whatever race or event it might be. I'd have a program, I'd have many steps along the way to get me to that place. So if we want to hit the 43% by 2030 and want to hit net zero by 2050, we need to be taking steps along the way and taking action now, not waiting until some later point down the track. Every day is the chance for positive action. And when you came back from uh, down there in Canberra, you, you went to a board meeting 
of the Alliance of Western Councils, the old OROC. Now, we've spoken about the uh, the Alliance of Western Councils, but just uh, update people in regards to who is this group again and, and what is their role? So this is, you're right, it's the old OROC. So there used to be rocks across the state, regions Lots of, rocks of across the state. Yeah, mate. <laughs> that's right. I can point a few out to you there, if you like. There used to be <laughs> formal rocks, ROCs, no K on the end, mm. and they were regions of councils. Mm. Ours was called Arana Region of Council, hence OROC. Yes. There were ones, for example, called Reroc or Centroc, and so ours was called OROC. Mm. The last government, and we're going back now probably seven years, six or seven years ago, in their infinite wisdom, decided that rocks were no longer the go. You should have joint organisations, which looked a bit like a rock. rock there yes, some different yeah, rules around it. Colour over the top of it and away you go. Yeah, and it was it was a bit of a renaming and a few changes there, but our O-Rock hmm. didn't ever really take to the joint organisation, and so that didn't really work in this area. And I know one of the things that I talked about when I came back in, I said to some of the other mayors around the region, should we get the old OROC back together again. Yes, mm. we'd like to do that. There was a lot of value in the old OROC. Mm. So we couldn't really call it a rock because the government had kind of said rocks are gone. Mm. So we basically took the same 12 councils that were in OROC, right. and I'll list them in a moment, the same 12 councils in OROC, we added one extra, and we now call it the Alliance of Western Councils. Mm. But if you looked at it from the outside... Sounds like a superpower. <laughs> it does, doesn't an alliance. But <laughs> but if you looked at it from the outside, it looks a lot like the old O-Rock. Yeah, right. And so the councils that are in there, you've got Bogan, Burke, Brewarrina, Cobar, Canamble, Ust of a regional council, Gulgandra, Midwestern Regional Council, Narromine, Walgut, Warham and Warrumbungle Shire Council. That's 12. And the 13th one that mm. wasn't in it before is Central Darling Shire Council. So that's the 13th that one. Takes up a fair bit of New South Wales, that group. Well, that's about 30% of the state, just just with those councils there. It is. And again, we meet regularly. We used to meet out in the various, in particular in OROC days, out in the various council areas. So you might have a meeting in Lightning Ridge or you might have a meeting in Burke or you might have a meeting in Dubbo. You had them in various locations. You'd share that around. We found it a little bit harder to get some of the ministers in particular out to some of the meetings out further west. So Mm. a minister might be in Sydney, in an office in Sydney, to get them to Burke. You're flying them into Dubbo, then putting them in a car and driving. It's a lot of time to do that. A lot of time yeah. to commit. And we used to get the occasional minister to come along to some of those meetings, mm. but the reality was that it was harder. So we tend to have more of them in Dubbo, these meetings in Dubbo now, because it's mm. easier for ministers to come yep, into Dubbo. fly in and fly out. Yeah, that's yep. right. So that's one of the things. But y- y- there's so many different things that we discuss at these meetings. Mm. Every meeting we have, it's, it's almost a bit of an interesting process to see what's going to be on the agenda this time, Mm. who we're going to be talking to, who's talking to us, what problems are we trying to solve. But a lot of it is just sharing Mm. that knowledge. We're in the same area. We rely on each other to a certain extent. Dubbo certainly relies on all those small councils for their population to Mm. come to Dubbo and shop. And they certainly rely on us for some of the high-level knowledge or even just some of the the bigger council thinking. Mm. And it's also easier to get meetings with government mm. when you're representing 13 councils. Mm. When each of those 13, if they went along individually to try and talk to a minister, it would be hard for all 13 to get meetings. Yep. Whereas having one minister come, or even sometimes we might say to the chairperson, who's Craig Davies from Narromine, the mayor okay. of Narromine, yep. we might say, Craig, can you try and chase up Minister X and we want to make sure they understand this particular area or mm. see if they've got a solution for us in this area. And when... Craig goes, and if he says, I'm representing Narromine Shire Council, it would be harder for him to get a meeting than if he said, I'm representing 13 councils, the Alliance of Western mm. Councils, 30% of the state. Yeah. A bit more power, but a bit yeah. more likelihood. And from yep. a government perspective, we've heard them say, mm. 
we would prefer to meet with groups yeah. because we can use our time more well, efficiently. Well, it's a win-win, isn't it, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah both, both parties win. State government gets an opportunity. They're one of the ministers to talk to a larger group of people and those little smaller groups in particular, I'd suggest, get the opportunity to talk to a minister directly. Yeah, that's right. So it is quite nice and I think quite effective and a good group of councils that are really salt of the earth mm. and really they're focused on just delivering for their communities. Did you catch up with any of the ministers there uh, at the meeting? So we did actually have Jenny Aitchison came oh, along. Okay, yeah. Uh, so she's the Minister for Regional Transport and Roads. So yes. Roads is a bit of a flavour of the week this week. Yes, there's a lot of road talk. Yeah, that's right. So she actually came along to our meeting and basically was there and sat there and was through the whole meeting. And, and Jenny's a new minister, obviously. Right. But I actually really like the fact that she stayed for the whole meeting. Sometimes ministers will come in, yeah. they'll do a presentation, take a few questions, and then they go again. Yeah, well. But Jenny said, no, I, I really want to understand this area and understand these councils better. Good. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to sit on the rest of the meeting. Went, Absolutely, fantastic. Wonderful. So she sat through that. We had someone from Transport for New South Wales there as well. And Jenny's chief of staff, mm. Christine Boyd, was there as well. So again, that was all fantastic. And I just think good value from their perspective to hear that mean, just hear the discussion and also just get a, a bit of an idea of how genuine these people are and how mm. much they are there mm. for their community. Absolutely. Now, speaking of catching up with uh, Jenny Atchison, it sounds like after the meeting you had the opportunity to uh, continue the conversation, but maybe more at a local base level. So what happened in the conversation, if you don't mind me asking? One of the things that's really important when you are at those bigger groups mm. is sometimes you want to make sure you're asking questions that might be more applicable to the broader group. Mm. You don't want to get right down into the nitty-gritty detail of something that's only relevant to your LGA because yes. it's a bit unfair on the minister well, and a bit unfair on the other people. Probably like any meeting sort of stuff. It's it's People sort of get to a point where they go, oh, man, just stop asking the personal questions, Can you, you take that offline? That's yeah, just, yeah, that's take right. it outside, will yeah. you? So we did catch up with Jenny afterwards, and she was very generous as well. She said, mm. any of the councils that would like to meet with me afterwards, and I think every council that was there probably took her up on the offer yeah, yeah. to some degree. So we had a few things to talk to her about. We talked about Coombilla Crossing previously mm. and about the process of spending $470,000 to yes. repair the causeway, which has got a whole bunch of issues with it. One of those issues is the fact that you'll probably be repairing the causeway again in a few years' time and you're continuing spending that money. Fisheries don't want us to just repair that because it's not good for the fish habitat in that particular creek. Yep. A whole range of issues there. And so councillors made the decision at this stage to go out and build a bridge mm. and we'll just try and get... the culvert, isn't it? That's right, replace mm. the culvert with a bridge mm. and that's better for... Everyone involved, mm. it's on a regional road. One of the things that we talk about is that we want to do betterment, so we want to make mm -hmm. it better than it is for long term. One of my favourite new phrases, <laughs> in the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we want to get better money mm. out of the government. So one of the things, the crucial thing we want to talk about was that because $470,000 is a given, $2.7 million is not a given. Mm. We want to make sure we get access to those funds in whatever grant program, whatever mm. process we've got there. So that was a great conversation around that. Did you feel as though that's a, a good outcome potentially as well? Well, she understood exactly where we were coming from. Again, she's got to try not and... going to sign off there and then, is she? Not there and then. And, and mm. you've got to find a program that it fits into. And it might be bridge replacement program, mm. even though it's not a bridge, but mm. that might be one to mm. angle for. Yep. We'll work out some way, hopefully, to get the majority of that money yes, back. It's interesting, you know, like that's that's a classic example of why getting that opportunity to talk to someone like uh, Jenny Atchison 
<clears throat> is so important because it takes what I suggest most of the sort of stuff when you go through and you're applying for money and looking for money, it's just through paperwork and it's through emails and it's these type of things. And here's a, a personal conversation to truly outline the issue and, and why you're actually going to be searching for more money for this. And to be fair to the government as well, that's a regional road. So yeah. Saxa Road is a regional road. So a classification of a regional road typically means that you share some of the costs of maintaining that road with the government because mm. it's identified that it's more important than just a local road. And that mm. does serve a regional purpose without a doubt. So we get traffic that does go along Saxa Road that isn't local to Dubbo Regional Council LGA. Mm. So that was one. The road requirements around the res, I talk about that as much as I can with anyone. And Absolutely. of course, we mentioned that we'd already talked to Penny Sharp, the relevant minister there about that. But again, it's one of those things that you never want to miss the opportunity to bring it up and make sure it's yes. being thought about. Because when they have discussions with ministers, I'm sure they talk about different things. We want them to talk about it and yeah. say, this res, what are we going to do about this res? Yeah, we need to fix the roads up for that res. Oh, yep. yep. I thought about that and this is what we could do there. So that's all important. Mm. The other one that was important is the new Dubbo Bridge. Now, I, I do often joke about the name of that. As the, opposed to the old Dubbo Bridge? Well, that's right. That's, this is the thing. <laughs> How long can it be called the new Dubbo Bridge for? That's right. Surely they'll rename it eventually. That's right. Well, it will. I'm sure it will be. But for the moment, it's still called the new Dubbo Bridge. Until the expiry date of new falls out. And then it'll be the slightly old that's Dubbo right. Bridge you know, or not so new Dubbo once Bridge. Once was a new bridge. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but one of the things that we've got is that we've worked hard with Transport for New South Wales mm. to get some agreements in place that basically give us some infrastructure that we'll need going forward that might necessarily have been absolutely required for that bridge, but with things that while you're doing that, it'd make sense to do these other things mm. and that'll be better for our community. Mm. So could you please do that? In the past, the state government has kind of said, yep, we're happy to do those things. We'll go down the path and fix those up for you. Now, mm. costs are blowing out of a whole range of projects yes. now. Costs are blowing out of the new Dubbo Bridge. Mm. So one of the things that the Transport New South Wales has come back to talk to us about is, well, some of these things that you really want to do, I'm not sure if we really want to do those anymore. And we've been adamant that no, mm. as far as we're concerned, yeah, yeah, we had an agreement in place. And it was, it was important to bring up, while we had a Transport for New South Wales staff member there, mm. important to bring all that up in front of Jenny just to say, look, mm. we think this should still happen. We understand where you're coming from, but these things are not essential for the bridge. But mm. from the community perspective and for social licence for this bridge, we think that this is important still to make this bridge project a real winner. Mm. Again, I is don't there know anything specific there that you're sort of highlighting? Uh, well, a whole range of little things. We're gaining some infrastructure around sewerage, around water, that again, we will need to fix up, change as mm. we keep expanding some of our northwest precinct in particular. Mm. Yeah. But again, while you're doing the bridge, you're doing a lot of work there. Why don't you do this other work at the same mm. time? Mm. It's not necessarily essential for the bridge but it certainly would make sense to do it and yep. we'd rather you pay for it rather than us pay Absolutely, for it. Absolutely, So right. we'll keep working on that. I think we'll get a good outcome from all of that, but it was just one of those things just to make sure we keep it bubbling away and keep it in the front of the mind of the people that are going to make these final mm. decisions. Sounds good. Now, Sheridan Road. Sheridan Road up there, There's uh, we talked about this before, that um, you had a recent meeting uh, with the principals up there who part of the edu education precinct up there in Sheraton Road. And uh, the decision was made that over the course of the school holidays coming up, there's going to be some work done um, in that, I suppose, that stretch of Sheraton Road that is, is looking quite ordinary, to say the least, right now. Um, so there's a bit of work about to happen. So what's happening up there in Sheraton Road? Because we're getting close to the holidays. Are they uh, all systems still go? Are we going to get that work done? Yeah, and that was, we did talk about before, one of the really good reasons to have these meetings. Mm. Sometimes you have a meeting with people, and you don't know what you're going to get out of the meeting. Mm. And that's okay. You have the meeting and you find, oh, gee, 
that was a really good idea to have that meeting because we discovered whatever it might be. Yeah. When we were talking to the schools in one of those school meetings, we talked about some of the programs that were happening, some of the things we'd need to do. And of course, the first thing the school said was, are you going to do this in school holidays mm. or outside school holidays? Now, our staff who were working on this didn't happen to have any kids at school at the time. Yes. And yeah. so they hadn't really considered school holidays in the whole scheme of things. Mm. They'd been planning things to happen as soon as possible because everyone said, let's get this done as yep. soon as possible. Yep. So there were some changes made. So there are some things, I'll give you some quick dates here in a moment, mm. but there are some things that have changed to fit in with school holidays because that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So yeah. that was Less good. traffic and less inconvenience. Exactly right. So on, and this is before school holidays, on the 16th and 17th of September, there'll be some drainage maintenance being okay. done up there. So that starts next week, doesn't it? Yeah, so mm. in about a week's time from when people, depending on when they listen to this podcast, yeah. but in about a week's time. Yep. But there'll be some road closures and details in place, but that'll be on a weekend. Mm -hmm. Then there'll be some of the footpath construction, the interim footpath we've talked about before. Oh, yes. Yes. That'll start on the 18th of September, so still in school term, but there won't be any interruptions to mm -hmm. traffic there. Mm -hmm. The big interruptions will start on the 23rd of September, so it's Saturday, that's and that'll be when your... weekend of the school holidays. Aren't yeah, so that'll yep. be when school holidays start, which is perfect. There'll be some road surface maintenance being done there. Excellent. Definitely road closures there, yep. and that'll probably take a few, well, maybe a few weeks actually, so there'll mm. be some of that time during mm. that period where things will be closed. Mm. While I'm on Sheraton Road, I also wanted to mention a bit about the Blue Ridge Link Road. Yeah, what's happening over there? What Are, are they... Is it being held up or are we starting or what's what's going on? So as with all of these things we do, we put things out for public consultation. Yes. So we've got that out for public consultation now. And as much as you and I have talked about Sheraton Road and the need to change the traffic flow, the top of traffic on Sheraton Road, mm. and also to then get traffic going through somewhere else and then fix that road up once we've got some of that heavy traffic removed, that all makes sense. Mm. But again, it affects different people in different ways. Yep. People that have got businesses in Blue Ridge are saying, well, we don't want these trucks coming through here. We want them left over on Sheraton mm, Road. Mm. So there's a public consultation okay. process out at the moment. Are you getting a bit of pushback from uh, the people at Blue Ridge right now, the businesses at Blue Ridge? Well, a couple of things there. The first thing is more time to do the submissions, and that's fine. Okay. So it's happened before. I've seen it happen where we've got a certain submission closing date, and people say, oh, look, I only just found out about this, or I need more time. Can we have an extension? And most mm. of the time, unless there's some timeline imperative, mm. most of the time we would say to people, sure, mm. that seems like a reasonable thing to request and we'll grant that extension. So we've done that in this scenario. Can I just ask you, just in regards to that Blue Ridge uh, link road, now we talked about uh, the, the acquisition of land that, that council has, uh, has taken there with regards to the Bathurst CDB and that land. So I'm assuming that Blue Ridge link road is going to go in behind uh, St John's College and St John's Primary and Bunnings and these top operations. Is, is it a straight run from where, say, let's say Boundary Road would extend to the end? Is that like a, like a T intersection thing, run straight back up to the highway? Is that the plan? Uh, there's a, a few bits there. There'll be uh, not so much a T intersection, there'll be a curved road in right. behind from the schools where you're talking about there. Yeah. It'll curve up to the east and then it'll go through Blue Ridge, but the long-term plan is it'll curve up and then join directly to the highway. Right. So there probably will be some additional traffic going through Blue Ridge that will eventually not be going through the existing businesses there in Blue Ridge. Right. But again, this is where it's good to have that public yeah, consultation yeah, let people yep. know what's going on. Yep. So we've extended that consultation out to the 28th of September. So that's a, a good opportunity for people to give mm -hmm. more feedback, have more time to do that. And Just via the Your Say site? Correct. Yep, go yep. to the Your Say site to, to send that information in. And again, there probably will be some people there who will say, well, I don't necessarily want that heavier traffic going through there. Mm. My business is set up here and 
I'm happy with the amount of traffic. I don't want extra traffic there. Mm. And so that'll be information we'll have to take on board in the whole scheme of things. But it's the same old story. As soon as you change one part mm. to mm. help one part of the community, it might have an impact on another part yes. of the community. So you've always got to be conscious of that. Yep. And what you're always doing as a councillor or as council is saying, what's the best decision mm. overall, mm. even though there are some circumstances where individuals might be impacted positively or negatively, you've always got to take a few steps back and say, mm. overall, what's the best outcome? And so that's, that's hard. Is there still some flexibility in regards to the placement of the Blue Ridge Link Road? It makes sense where we're going at the moment, mm. but we'll hear feedback. And one of the great things about feedback, the, the feedback that I enjoy the most, is when people don't just tell you about the problem, they tell you about the solution. potential solution. Mm. That's right. Absolutely. So don't put the, the road through there. Full stop, you go, well we don't really have much of a choice. Mm. Or don't mm. put the road through there. It would be better if you did this. And we go, oh, gee, that's a good idea. We haven't thought mm. about that one. Mm. Or let's have a look at that. Oh, that's going to be too expensive to do that. Whatever it might be, mm. you've got that option there to be able to look at different solutions. I think you've got some sound advice there. Uh, if people do want to comment on the Your Say site is to don't just simply sit there and complain about it. Try to offer a solution to it. Yeah, that's, that's something that I would like to see. Mm. You don't have to, mm. but that's always going to be a better outcome if you can come up Absolutely. with a solution as well. Now, speaking of uh, solutions, um, again, probably going back about maybe six months ago, might have been, we talked about the Mayoral Development Forum. The Mayor's, sorry, let me try that again. The Mayoral Developers Forum. I'll get that right. So, now, this is something uh, whereby I remember you talked about a while ago, Matt, um, where you get the developers, invite developers to come into the space with the councillors and yourself and members of the staff uh, just to talk about the nature of development in town and. Uh, which way Dubbo was going and, and where the needs are and uh, just trying to get all parties together. Is is that the general aim of this forum again? It's really just to make sure we've got open lines of communication. Mm. And I started the first one way back in December 2011, mm. not long after I was elected as mayor because I had some people who, same as when you've got new ministers, yes. gets the calls. I didn't get 800 requests for a meeting, but yeah, I certainly that's had... That's right. <laughs> that's right. I certainly had a few requests for meetings. 799 instead. That's exactly it. And one of the... Or a few people that t- spoke to me were developers saying, mm. takes too long to get development applications through. We need to keep developing in Dubbo. What can you do? How can you fix the problem? Mm. And I talked to our development staff and they said, oh, some of these developers, the applications they're putting in, they're not properly done or they're not mm. thorough enough. We need to go back, keep asking for questions. If they had them complete in the first place, it'd go through a bit quicker. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, there's some valid points of view. And you know, they were just two simplistic mm. examples, but valid points of view from both sides. I need these people in the mm. same room. Mm. That makes a lot more that's sense right. to me. Let's get the left hand talking to the right hand. That's right. If if you get a he said, he said, she said, yes. bit of a tongue twister, it is. then you end up with not good outcomes. So mm. I said, let's put them all together in one room. So we started the first one in December 2011. Yep. And the idea was everyone involved in the development industry were in the one room. Mm. And I think I did joke about it last time we spoke about it, saying that some people in Metro councils go, oh no, you're putting developers and you staff in the one room. Together, they'll be corrupt for That's sure. right. There'll be brown paper bags That's all it, over yeah, the place. Yeah. So thousand of dollars being exchanged. I, I'm comfortable that there aren't going to be people walking with brown paper bags. Mm-hmm. If they are, it's going to be a bit obvious to 80 people in the room. Pretty sure that's not the place to do it anyway. No, if you're going to try and do it, that <laughs> wouldn't be the, the scenario. So one of the things we do is we usually get a bit of a presentation from staff. Sometimes mm. we'll get a bit of a presentation from some developers. Just a bit of an update, and then yeah. most importantly, a Q&A, but then also building relationships. So mm. you've got developers who will say, oh, I've talked to Billy over the phone a number of times. I've never met him. You go, g'day, Billy, shake hands, eyeball each other, talk, and oh, actually, Billy's not such a bad guy. The developer's, developer's not such a bad guy. Mm. So you mm. end up building relationships. Yep. And I, I don't think for a moment that 
we're building or encouraging corrupt relationships, but you want to be able to have relationships where oh. you can have a conversation. You still have to submit the right paperwork. Yep. You don't say, hey, buddy, wink and a nod, this will yeah. all be right. Yeah. You have a process that you go through that still has to be a legal complying DA. Yeah. But again, I think you can understand each other better and you can ask advice and go through that conversation process. Mm. So the mm. next one coming up is this Wednesday. Again, hopefully people are listening to this before Wednesday. Yes, yes. 13th of September at the Western Plains Cultural Centre, 5.30pm. Okay. Normally we say to people register, so we've got a bit of an idea yep. of numbers, but when you listen to this, you might not have time so to register. The game, would, the game would be if you're in the development or building industry, there's an opportunity there for you to come along. Any part of it. So it could yeah. be banks, for example, come along yes, right. because they're doing home loans and mm. they want to understand a bit more about the scenario and what's happening mm. with demand, etc. You might have conveyances come along. You might have a whole range of different builders, different traders come yeah, along. Nice. And you've got the classic developers who come along because we want that land to continue to be developed. Yeah. But even the last one, because there hadn't been one for a few years, the last one that we held, the feedback from some of the developers there was, wow, I didn't realise some of the projects that were going to occur in Dubbo mm. over the next few years. Mm. Gee, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? I better ramp up some of my development. And again, mm. this is what we need. We mm. need developers going for it hard yep. because we've got so many people that want to move to Dubbo. So yeah. we want that development to occur. So it's exciting, but anyone, anyone that's involved at all, Wednesday, 5.30pm, Cultural Centre, come along, please. We want to hear your feedback. We want to also get you to see what's happening in the rest of Dubbo. Oh, it's a terrific idea. Yeah, the old bulky rubbish collection days. Yeah, so I know my, uh, my wife will be on to be very soon to go and clean out that shed again. Of course, because it's getting close to the uh, that time of the year where we put out all of our junk out of our shed and put on the uh, the curbside, and uh, then the, the magical fairies come around and pick it up. And uh, please don't take offence to the word fairies. All those I've seen some of those blokes; they're quite huge. Don't come around; they'd make offence on that one. But they're out there. They'll pick it all up, and away they'll go. So now it looks like there might be some change of dates for this. Is that right? And also, I suggest maybe some changes in what we can put out. Uh, not so much change of dates. There's the dates which. I'll give you a couple of the dates, mm. but you can also look those up. But I just think it's important that we get some of the rules right around this because sometimes it does get a little bit out of hand. Each household is permitted to put out the equivalent of a box trailer load of rubbish. Okay. Okay, so it's not – sometimes you see huge piles mm. there. Mm. And I think we've probably been a little bit – Liberal? Yeah, in the past, mm. we've let people Generous. get away with it. Mm. But I think it's time now that it's been going for long enough that we really need to say to people, this is your limit. It's a box, mm -hmm. lo a box trailer load of rubbish. That's mm -hmm. that's your limit there. Other limits on there as well, for example, no more than two mattresses. Mattresses are a big issue for us. Really? Mattresses so getting... Do people go through mattresses once a year sort of thing, do they? Who knows? I but we seem, the case. we seem to get too many mattresses at the tip yeah, and right. mattresses are quite voluminous. So you've mm, got to find are. somewhere to get that volume put away. Yeah. Putting them apart is quite expensive. Yep. Getting the raw materials out of them doesn't seem to give you a good return. Mm. So mattresses are an issue. So two mattresses is the limit. What's it, so is it, do people put out more than two mattresses? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sort of sitting here for a minute thinking uh, the last time I threw out a mattress, look, there was some of those little smaller one sort of thing years ago, but most people, I suggest, sort of keep their mattresses pretty well, but obviously you, not. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But apparently yeah. that is an issue. Okay. So the other issue, folks, that's it. which I find interesting, is no more than four passenger tyres. Yeah, right. Passenger tyres and mattresses. Yep. Now, again, when oh. I replace tyres on my vehicle, I normally let 
the tyre place that I go to yep. take my old tyres. You can take my tyres. That's, that's right. right. I don't tend to keep them. But what are they planning on retreading them or something? Or I don't know. Cutting them up into those black swans that people put in their gardens? They maybe had a pla- maybe that, maybe a plan to put pot plants in them and that's then it, they, and they got over decide it. decide that's a hard job. Maybe they're that. planning to keep snakes in them because that's probably that's the, the best do. use of them, I think, around the house. <laughs> so that's they're, they're two of the things that are important, right. I think. But also just the volume of rubbish, but also mm. the time. One bit of feedback I get is that GW looks untidy at the moment because mm. all these people have got their curbside rubbish out there yep. waiting and to be collected. And they've weeks before it. That's the thing that annoys right. me. So we're saying, please don't put them out, put your things out any more than a week prior oh. to the collection date. The whip is going to be cracked. Yeah, we we want to do it. I mean, technically, it's mm. illegal. If you just go and put it out now, mm. it's illegal dumping. Mm. If you put it out at a collection, that's fine. But again, if you put it out too early, mm. we might classify it as illegal dumping. So okay. we're just asking for a bit of cooperation from the community here. Right. We've got seven different zones. You've got southeast, northeast, west, central, south, Wellington and villages, rural, east and rural. And there are different dates for all those. And I'll run through them quickly. But mm. again, all of this is on the Your Say site. As you know, there's yep. one place to go for all this public information. Southeast, for example, collection will be from 9th to the 13th of October. So that's now, when it all starts. That's right. So the first group. keep in mind that if you put it out on the 2nd of October, that's fine. That's a week beforehand. Yep. You go and put it out now, that's too early. Mm. So that's where we're saying to people, just keep it in your place and then yep. a week beforehand, sure, put it out then. Yeah. The northeast, 16th to the 20th of October. West, 23rd to the 27th. Central South, 6th to the 10th of November. Now, if you're not sure where you are, again, mm. you also have maps site. there. Yep. Wellington and Villages, so that includes places like Wellington, Nanima, Eucarina, Stewart Town, etc., 13 to the 17th of November. Rural East includes places like Bedangra, Ponto Falls, Geary, Wangarvan, Fergrove Estate. That's Basically, me. residences located outside the 50k and 60k speed zones with a regular Friday collection day. Mm-hmm. Okay? And they'll be from the 20th to the 24th of November. I'm just writing that down now, actually. <laughs> That's good. And then Rural, which includes places like Elong, Ballymore, Richmond Estate, Brocklehurst, etc. Again, those residents outside the 50-60k speed zone that have a collection day, not Fridays, yep. then they'll be from the 27th of November to the 1st of December. Okay. Now, again, I know there's a lot of information to give someone verbally. Yep. But go to your say site. Go to your you say, have a look, look at that. Just try and stick to the rules because we don't want to be finding anyone, but we also don't want Dubbo to look messy during oh, this process. That's exactly it, isn't it? You know, like it's one of those things where we just got to be uh, a bit more considerate, I'd suggest, of uh, of everybody and what it looks like if you're putting these things out three or four weeks beforehand. It does. It looks untidy. So let's keep Australia beautiful, and more particularly, let's keep Dubbo beautiful. Now looking here, Matt, uh, just a reminder for the Dubbo Day Awards and nominations. Uh, the nominations, they're uh, still open, but they're, I'd suggest, probably closing fast for the Dubbo Day Awards. The so is this all again on the Your Say site? On, on the Your Say site, that's exactly right. And we've talked about it before. Dubbo Day, fantastic day. bit of acknowledgement for people in our community doing some great work mm. out there. Don't hesitate. If you think, oh, yeah, gee, she does really good work. Ah, oh, a bit too busy at the moment. Mm. Don't. Just go and put the nomination in. Absolutely. It's pretty quick to do. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of information to fill in there. And it's great to just pat someone on the back and say, well done. So 5 p.m. on Friday, the 20th of October is when they close. Okay, so you've got a little bit of time there. But as yeah. you say, I think that's the big thing is that if you know somebody that you feel as though needs to be recognised, recognise them. Just go and do it. Mm. That would be a, uh, a moment I suggest you would have enjoyed during the week. Attending the 2023 Dubbo Writers Festival launch. 
So you're a writer at heart, mate. I, every week I listen to your limericks and <laughs> sort of stuff. You enjoy a little bit of writing. I do. How, how was the uh, the launch the other day? Well, very good. The launch was fantastic, but I just like the whole Writers' Festival. I just think it's fantastic to show off some of our local talent, yeah. to encourage our local talent as well, and just really try and get people to keep doing what they're doing. So talk me through this. I, I must admit, I probably... I should know more about this, but I don't, being an English teacher. Um, that's that's my bad. But tell me, is it something that uh, has been going on for a f- quite a few years? I'm not familiar with all of the exact details of the Writers' Festival. This is its eighth year in 2023. Not sure what happened during the COVID years. I do know I went along to the Writers' Festival last year, so I'm familiar with it from last year as well. And they've got a, a range of things that occur. You've got the launch event, which was on Friday night. But over the weekend, for example, they've got writing workshops and book conversations with authors and publishing experts. And so they've got some of those are free events, some are paid events. And one of the things I did like was they've got these opportunities to meet publishing industry professionals. So they've got three professionals they had uh, along for the weekend, Rochelle, Linda and Candice. And you could have a, a consultation with each of those or with any of those. And they had limited slots available but you could pay $50 for a 30-minute consultation with one of those three. And so I pretty much I was certain actually they were booked out for all three of those. And I just think that's a, a good opportunity as well. People might have these great ideas out there and they want to work out how they can get into it, but talking to people that are either people that have gone through the process or industry experts I think is fantastic. And if you're keen to do it, then $50 for a half-hour session doesn't sound like a lot of money. So... Well done. The Outback Writers' Centre organises the Writers' Festival. And again, you just get these great community groups doing great things out in the community. This year, they had a guest speaker in a person by the name of Candace Fox. Right. Now, she's done some pretty work in terms of her career. Crimson Lake is probably her most famous book. Okay. Crimson Lake's been turned into a show on TV called Tropo. Oh. That's been on ABC. Okay. And so that's obviously fantastic if that's someone fantastic. thinks well your book's good enough. But yeah. she's got nine books. She's also done, I think, seven books, just remembering from the talk on Friday night where she was talking to the audience there, mm. seven books where she's co-authored with James Patterson. Well, there's two things there. I know James Patterson. I've, I've read some of his work. Co-authored. Mm. How do you co-author a book? Well, she was asked that because I was thinking the same thing as you. I'm going, yeah. wow, that's a bit tricky. Well, I thought writing's a fairly personal sort of project. Very individual, it seems, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? She talked about a lot of information. James Patterson lives in the US. A lot of information going back and forth via email, a lot of information being shared between the two. Mm. But I don't know how you actually write it. Do you write one chapter each and you alternate mm-hmm. that? Do you write bits and then send it to the other person for editing? Yes. So I don't know that... Should the person die now or should they die later? Yeah, you all know? those things. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. So I don't know the the mechanics of that. But again, it was a question she was asked. So other people mm. were interested in that. But just little things. You, you've got an insight. And this is someone whose full-time job is an author. Mm. She'll write maybe a few thousand words a day. And then the first thing she does each morning is gets up and reads what she wrote the day before right. to see how it sounds with a bit of sleep under her belt mm. and just looking back at it retrospectively and then do I need to change that, fix that and then, okay, I'm happy with that, now let's move on. So it's very disciplined there, mm. but just little things. So she does a lot of crime writing, a lot of uh, just fiction crime writing, Right. but you're getting your ideas from everywhere. But she said on the plane out to Dubbo, there just happened to be a guy sitting across the aisle from her that had a little quirk in the way he pushed his glasses up onto his nose. And she, she looked at it a few times and went, that's actually quite interesting. I'm going to use that little quirk in a character of mine, oh, in a future novel. That's so clever. 
yeah, but yeah. it's that sort of thing. So she's, yeah. she seems like she's very observant yes. and just taking information around you and see how yeah. you'll use that at some point in I'd the future. I'd be very worried talking to her. Well. I'd be worrying about what I she's th- tried to take from me. I thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> what did I say to her earlier when well, I was talking right. to oh, her? That's right. Oh, goodness. I'm read about this in the next James Patterson Yeah, will I, will I see a, a mayor <laughs> in the future that's got some strange quirk or some strange <laughs> things that the mayor does? So I, I think that was great. But having someone of that stature yeah. come along as well, and you don't do that easily. Mm. Uh, I'm sure as the group here in Dubbo, just trying to find someone to come along is, is difficult because mm-hmm. you've got to find someone in their schedule that's yeah. prepared to come along and all the rest of it. But again, you've got passion. You chase those things up. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Another great project for Dubbo. Now, speaking of great projects and activities that are happening, of course, we are right smack bam in the middle of Dream Festival. The good old Dream how good was last night? It was yeah. a wonderful. A bit fresh, but it was beautiful. That's right. See all those lanterns come up Macquarie Street and then into the park? And we haven't had, because of weather and COVID over the last few years, mm. we haven't had the lantern parade. But, yeah, it was pretty exciting to be there, pretty exciting to be in with the parade itself, actually you know, going down with the oh, parade. Oh, yes, yes, I saw you out the front there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, again, I think it's one of those things that it's just a great opportunity to get the community together. Mm. Mm. And uh, I do like Dream in terms of the variety, different things can happen. Mm. Zucoustic was on a week ago. Yes, that was good roll-off that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. beautiful day for weather as well. And, and I, I think the potential for Dream is it can be whatever you want it to be. Mm. The Lantern Parade seems to have captured the imagination now. Mm. But going forward, it could be really whatever you want it to be in different parts, yeah. almost come in and out of Dream. Yep. A big thank you to Macquarie Credit Union because they have been a huge supporter of Dream. Well, for I a number know, of years, haven't they? Now, I don't really? know if I'd say from day one. I can't remember if mm. we go back that far back, but certainly a number of years, been mm. a great supporter. So thanks to the support they've given, and they obviously believe in it as well. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's not often we get such a perfect segue for your Limerick. But uh, I'd be suggesting today that the most obvious Limerick option that you must be preparing for us today would be something on the Dream Festival, surely today. Well, I've cheated here a little bit because I did use a Limerick when I launched Dream a few months ago. Yes. And at the official opening ceremony, I did use a Limerick for Dream as well when I was there on Saturday. So you're going to share us with us today? So I'm going to have the same Limerick there. Oh, well, it's it's reuse, recycle. It's all about the environment. Exactly right. I don't want anyone to miss out on this. (laughs) The Dream Fest in Dubbo's a sight with lanterns that dance in the night. As they float through the air, there's a magical flare that fills every heart with delight. Oh, lovely work, lovely work. Well, folks, that, of course, wraps us up for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.